And now we continue with the reading of the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. We next consider whether the doctrine of stare decisis counsels continued acceptance of Roe and Casey. Stare decisis plays an important role in our case law, and we've explained that it serves many valuable ends. It protects the interests of those who have taken action in reliance on a past decision. It reduces incentives for challenging settled precedents, saving parties and courts the expense of endless relitigation. It fosters even-handed decision-making by requiring that like cases be decided in a like manner. It contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. And it restrains judicial hubris and reminds us to respect the judgment of those who have grappled with important questions in the past. Precedent is a way of accumulating and passing down the learning of past generations, a font of established wisdom richer than what can be found in any single judge or panel of judges. We have long recognized, however, that stare decisis is not an inexorable command, and it is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution. It has been said that it is sometimes more important that an issue be settled than it be settled right. But when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution, the great charter of our liberties, which was meant to endure through a long lapse of ages, we place a high value on having the matter settled right. In addition, when one of our constitutional decisions goes astray, the country is usually stuck with the bad decision unless we correct our own mistake. An erroneous constitutional decision can be fixed by amending the Constitution, but our Constitution is notoriously hard to amend. Therefore, in appropriate circumstances, we must be willing to reconsider and, if necessary, overrule constitutional decisions. Some of our most important constitutional decisions have overruled prior precedents. We mention three. In Brown v. Board of Education, the court repudiated the separate but equal doctrine, which had allowed states to maintain racially segregated schools and other facilities. In doing so, the court overruled the infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, along with six other Supreme Court precedents that had applied the separate but equal rule. In West Coast Hotel Co. v. Parrish, the court overruled Adkins v. Children's Hospital of D.C., which had held that a law setting minimum wages for women violated the liberty protected by the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause. West Coast Hotel signaled the demise of an entire line of important precedents that had protected an individual liberty right against state and federal health and welfare legislation. Finally, 
in West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett, after the lapse of only three years, the court overruled Minersville School District v. Gobitis and held that public school students could not be compelled to salute the flag in violation of their sincere beliefs. Barnett stands out because nothing had changed during the intervening period other than the court's belated recognition that its earlier decision had been seriously wrong. On many other occasions, this court has overruled important constitutional decisions. Without these decisions, American constitutional law as we know it would be unrecognizable, and this would be a different country. No justice of this court has ever argued that the court should never overrule a constitutional decision, but overruling a precedent is a serious matter. It is not a step that should be taken lightly. Our cases have attempted to provide a framework for deciding when a precedent should be overruled, and they have identified factors that should be considered in making such a decision. In this case, five factors weigh strongly in favor of overruling Roe and Casey. The nature of their error, the quality of their reasoning, the workability of the rules they imposed on the country, their disruptive effect on other areas of the law, and the absence of concrete reliance. A. The nature of the court's error. An erroneous interpretation of the Constitution is always important, but some are more damaging than others. The infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson was one such decision. It betrayed our commitment to equality before the law. It was egregiously wrong on the day it was decided, and as the Solicitor General agreed at oral argument, it should have been overruled at the earliest opportunity. Roe was also egregiously wrong and deeply damaging. For reasons already explained, Roe's constitutional analysis was far outside the bounds of any reasonable interpretation of the various constitutional provisions to which it vaguely pointed. Roe was on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Casey perpetuated its errors, and those errors do not concern some arcane corner of the law of little importance to the American people. Rather, wielding nothing but raw judicial power, the court usurped the power to address a question of profound moral and social importance that the Constitution unequivocally leaves for the people. Casey described itself as calling both sides of the national controversy to resolve their debate, but in doing so, Casey necessarily declared a winning side. Those on the losing side, those who sought to advance the state's interests in fetal life, could no longer seek to persuade their elected representatives to adopt policies consistent with their views. The court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans 
who dissented in any respect from Roe. Roe fanned into life an issue that has inflamed our national politics in general and has obscured with its smoke the selection of justices to this court in particular ever since. Together, Roe and Casey represent an error that cannot be allowed to stand. As in the court's landmark decision in West Coast Hotel illustrates, the court has previously overruled decisions that wrongly removed an issue from the people and the democratic process. As Justice White later explained, decisions that find in the Constitution principles or values that cannot fairly be read into that document usurp the people's authority, for such decisions represent choices that the people have never made and that they cannot disavow through corrective legislation. For this reason, it is essential that this court maintain the power to restore authority to its proper possessors by correcting constitutional decisions that on reconsideration are found to be mistaken. B. The Quality of the Reasoning Under our precedents, the quality of the reasoning in a prior case has an important bearing on whether it should be reconsidered. In Part 2, we explained why Roe was incorrectly decided, but that decision was more than just wrong. It stood on exceptionally weak grounds. Roe found that the Constitution implicitly conferred a right to obtain an abortion, but it failed to ground its decision in text, history, or precedent. It relied on an erroneous historical narrative. It devoted great attention to and presumably relied on matters that have no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution. It disregarded the fundamental difference between the precedents on which it relied and the question before the court. It concocted an elaborate set of rules with different restrictions for each trimester of pregnancy, but it did not explain how this veritable code could be teased out of anything in the Constitution, the history of abortion laws, prior precedent, or any other cited source and its most important rule that states cannot protect fetal life prior to viability was never raised by any party and has never been plausibly explained. Rowe's reasoning quickly drew scathing scholarly criticism, even from supporters of broad access to abortion. The Casey plurality, while reaffirming Rowe's central holding, pointedly refrained from endorsing most of its reasoning. It revised the textual basis for the abortion right, silently abandoned Roe's erroneous historical narrative, and jettisoned the trimester framework. But it replaced that scheme with an arbitrary undue burden test and relied on an exceptional version of stare decisis, that, as explained below, this court had never before applied and has never invoked since. The weaknesses in Roe's reasoning are well known. 
without any grounding in the constitutional text, history, or precedent, it opposed on the entire country a detailed set of rules, much like those that one might expect to find in a statute or regulation. Dividing pregnancy into three trimesters, the court imposed special rules for each. During the first trimester, the court announced the abortion decision and its effectuation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. After that point, a state's interest in regulating abortion for the sake of a woman's health became compelling, and accordingly, a state could regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health. Finally, in the stage subsequent to viability, which in 1973 roughly coincided with the beginning of the third trimester, the state's interest in the potentiality of human life became compelling and therefore a state could regulate and even proscribe abortion except where it is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. This elaborate scheme was the court's own brainchild. Neither party advocated the trimester framework, nor did either party nor any amicus argue that viability should mark the point at which the scope of the abortion right and a state's regulatory authority should be substantially transformed. Not only did this scheme resemble the work of a legislature, but the court made little effort to explain how these rules could be deduced from any of the sources on which constitutional decisions are usually based. We have already discussed Roe's treatment of constitutional text, and the opinion failed to show that history, precedent, or any other cited source supported its scheme. Roe featured a lengthy survey of history, but much of its discussion was irrelevant, and the court made no effort to explain why it was included. For example, multiple paragraphs were devoted to an account of the views and practices of ancient civilizations, where infanticide was widely accepted. When it came to the most important historical fact, how the states regulated abortion when the 14th Amendment was adopted, the court said almost nothing. It allowed that states had tightened their abortion laws in the middle and late 19th century, but it implied that these laws might have been enacted not to protect fetal life, but to further a Victorian social concern about illicit sexual conduct. Rose's failure even to note the overwhelming consensus of state laws in effect in 1868 is striking, and what it said about the common law was simply wrong. Relying on two discredited articles by an abortion advocate, the court erroneously suggested, contrary to Bracton, Coke, Hale, Blackstone, and a wealth of other authority, that the common law had probably never really treated post-quickening abortion as a crime. This erroneous understanding appears to have played an important part 
in the court's thinking because the opinion cited the lenity of the common law as one of the four factors that informed its decision. After surveying history, the opinion spent many paragraphs conducting the sort of fact-finding that might be undertaken by a legislative committee. This included a lengthy account of the position of the American Medical Association and the position of the American Public Health Association, as well as the vote by the American Bar Association's House of Delegates in February 1972 on proposed abortion legislation. Also noted were a British judicial decision handed down in 1939 and a new British abortion law enacted in 1967. The court did not explain why these sources shed light on the meaning of the Constitution, and not one of them adopted or advocated anything like the scheme that Roe imposed on the country. Finally, after all this, the court turned to precedent. Citing a broad array of cases, the court found support for a constitutional right of personal privacy, but it conflated two very different meanings of the term. The right to shield information from disclosure and the right to make and implement important personal decisions without governmental interference. Only the cases involving this second sense of the term could have any possible relevance to the abortion issue, and some of the cases in that category involved personal decisions that were obviously very, very far afield. What remained was a handful of cases having something to do with marriage or procreation, but none of these decisions involved what is distinctive about abortion, its effect on what Roe termed potential life. When the court summarized the basis for the scheme it imposed on the country, it asserted that its rules were consistent with the following. 1. The relative weights of the respective interests involved. 2. The lessons and examples of medical and legal history. 3. The lenity of the common law and for the demands of the profound problems of the present day. Put aside the second and third factors, which were based on the court's flawed account of history, and what remains are precisely the sort of considerations that legislative bodies often take into account when they draw lines that accommodate competing interests. The scheme Roe produced looked like legislation, and the court provided the sort of explanation that might be expected from a legislative body. What Roe did not provide was any cogent justification for the lines it drew. Why, for example, does a state have no authority to regulate first-trimester abortions for the purpose of protecting a woman's health? The court's only explanation was that mortality rates for abortion at that stage were lower than the mortality rates for childbirth. But the court did not explain why mortality rates were the only factor that a state could legitimately consider. Many health and safety regulations aim to avoid adverse health consequences short of death. 
and the court did not explain why it departed from the normal rule that courts defer to when the judgments of legislatures in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties. An even more glaring deficiency was Roe's failure to justify the critical distinction it drew between pre- and post-viability abortions. Here is the court's entire explanation. With respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in potential life, the compelling point is at viability. This is so because the fetus then presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the womb. As Professor Lawrence Tribe has written, clearly this mistakes a definition for a syllogism. The definition of a viable fetus is one that is capable of surviving outside the womb. But why is this the point at which the state's interest becomes compelling? If, as Roe held, a state's interest in protecting prenatal life is compelling after viability, why isn't that interest equally compelling before viability? Roe did not say, and no explanation is apparent. This arbitrary line has not found much support among philosophers and ethicists who have attempted to justify a right to abortion. Some have argued that a fetus should not be entitled to legal protection until it acquires the characteristics that they regard as defining what it means to be a person. Among the characteristics that have been offered as essential attributes of personhood are sentience, self-awareness, the ability to reason, or some combination thereof. By this logic, it would be an open question whether even born individuals, including young children or those afflicted with certain developmental or medical conditions, merit protection as persons. But even if one takes the view that personhood begins when a certain attribute or combination of attributes is acquired, it is very hard to see why viability should mark the point where personhood begins. The most obvious problem with any such argument is that viability is heavily dependent on factors that have nothing to do with the characteristics of a fetus. One is the state of neonatal care at a particular point in time. Due to the development of new equipment and improved practices, the viability line has changed over the years. In the 19th century, a fetus may not have been viable until the 32nd or 33rd week of pregnancy, or even later, when Roe was decided, viability was gauged at roughly 28 weeks. Today, respondents draw the line at 23 or 24 weeks. So according to Roe's logic, states now have a compelling interest in protecting a fetus with a gestational age of, say, 26 weeks, but in 1973, states did not have an interest in protecting an identical fetus. How can that be? 
Viability also depends on the quality of the available medical facilities. Thus, a 24-week-old fetus may be viable if a woman gives birth in a city with hospitals that provide advanced care for very premature babies. But if the woman travels to a remote area, far from any such hospital, the fetus may no longer be viable. On what ground could the constitutional status of a fetus depend on the pregnant woman's location? And if viability is meant to mark a line having universal moral significance, can it be that a fetus that is viable in a big city in the United States has a privileged moral status not enjoyed by an identical fetus in a remote area of a poor country? In addition, as the court once explained, viability is not really a hard and fast line. A physician determining a particular fetus's odds of surviving outside the womb must consider a number of variables including gestational age, fetal weight, a woman's general health and nutrition, the quality of the available medical facilities, and other factors. It is thus only with difficulty that a physician can estimate the probability of a particular fetus's survival. And even if each fetus's probability of survival could be ascertained with certainty, settling on a probability of survival that should count as viability is another matter. Is a fetus viable with a 10% chance of survival? 25%? 50%? Can such a judgment be made by a state? And can a state specify a gestational age limit that applies in all cases, or must these difficult questions be left entirely to the individual attending physician on the particular facts of the case before him? The viability line, which Casey termed Rose Central Rule, makes no sense, and it is telling that other countries almost uniformly eschew such a line. The court thus asserted raw judicial power to impose, as a matter of constitutional law, a uniform viability rule that allowed the states less freedom to regulate abortion than the majority of Western democracies enjoy. All in all, Roe's reasoning was exceedingly weak, and academic commentators, including those who agreed with the decision as a matter of policy, were unsparing in their criticism. John Hart Eli famously wrote that Roe was not constitutional law and gave almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Archibald Cox, who served as Solicitor General under President Kennedy, commented that Roe reads like a set of hospital rules and regulations that neither historian, layman, nor lawyer will be persuaded are part of the Constitution. Lawrence Tribe wrote that even if there is a need to divide pregnancy into several segments with lines that clearly identify the limits of governmental power, interest balancing of the form the court pursues fails to justify 
any of the lines actually drawn. Mark Tushnet termed Roe a totally unreasoned judicial opinion. Despite Roe's weaknesses, its reach was steadily extended in the years that followed. The court struck down laws requiring that second trimester abortions be performed only in hospitals, that minors obtain parental consent, that women give written consent after being informed of the status of the developing prenatal life and the risks of abortion, that women wait 24 hours for an abortion, that a physician determine viability in a particular manner, that a physician performing a post-viability abortion use the technique most likely to preserve the life of the fetus, and that fetal remains be treated in a humane and sanitary manner. Justice White complained that the court was engaging in unrestrained imposition of its own extra-constitutional value preferences, and the United States, as amicus curiae, asked the court to overrule Roe five times in the decade before Casey, and then asked the court to overrule it once more in Casey itself. When Casey revisited Roe almost 20 years later, very little of Roe's reasoning was defended or preserved. The court abandoned any reliance on a privacy right and instead grounded the abortion right entirely on the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. The court did not reaffirm Roe's erroneous account of abortion history, In fact, none of the justices in the majority said anything about the history of the abortion right. And as for precedent, the court relied on essentially the same body of cases that Roe had cited. Thus, with respect to the standard grounds for constitutional decision-making, text, history, and precedent, Casey did not attempt to bolster Roe's reasoning. The court also made no real effort to remedy one of the greatest weaknesses in Roe's analysis, its much-criticized discussion of viability. The court retained what it called Roe's central holding, that a state may not regulate pre-viability abortions for the purpose of protecting fetal life, but it provided no principled defense of the viability line. Instead, it merely rephrased what Roe had said, stating that viability marked the point at which the independent existence of a second life can, in reason and fairness, be the object of state protection that now overrides the rights of the woman. Why reason and fairness demanded that the line be drawn at viability the court did not explain, and the justices who authored the controlling opinion conspicuously failed to say that they agreed with the viability rule. Instead, they candidly acknowledged the reservations some of us may have in reaffirming that holding of Roe. The controlling opinion criticized and rejected Roe's trimester scheme and substituted a new undue burden test 
but the basis for this test was obscure. And as we will explain, the test is full of ambiguities and is difficult to apply. Casey, in short, either refused to affirm or rejected important aspects of Rowe's analysis, failed to remedy glaring deficiencies in Rowe's reasoning, endorsed what it termed Rowe's central holding, while suggesting that a majority might not have thought it was correct, provided no new support for the abortion right other than Roe's status as precedent and imposed a new and problematic test with no firm grounding in constitutional text, history, or precedent. As discussed below, Casey also deployed a novel version of the doctrine of stare decisis. This new doctrine did not account for the profound wrongness of the decision in Roe and placed great weight on an intangible form of reliance with little, if any, basis in prior case law. Stare decisis does not command the preservation of such a decision. C. Workability Our precedents counsel that another important consideration in deciding whether a precedent should be overruled is whether the rule it imposes is workable. That is, whether it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. Casey's undue burden test has scored poorly on the workability scale. Problems begin with the very concept of an undue burden. As Justice Scalia noted in his Casey partial dissent, determining whether a burden is due or undue is inherently standardless. Whether a burden is deemed undue depends heavily on which factors the judge considers and how much weight he accords each of them. The Casey plurality tried to put meaning into the undue burden test by setting out three subsidiary rules, but these rules created their own problems. The first rule is that a provision of law is invalid if its purpose or effect is to place a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability. But whether a particular obstacle qualifies as substantial is often open to reasonable debate. In the sense relevant here, substantial means of ample or considerable amount, quantity, or size. This ambiguity is a problem, and the second rule, which applies at all stages of a pregnancy, muddies things further. It states that measures designed to ensure that the woman's choice is informed are constitutional so long as they do not impose an undue burden on the right. To the extent that this rule applies to pre-viability abortions, it overlaps with the first rule and appears to impose a different standard. 
consider a law that imposes an insubstantial obstacle but serves little purpose. As applied to a pre-viability abortion, would such a regulation be constitutional on the ground that it does not impose a substantial obstacle? Or would it be unconstitutional on the ground that it creates an undue burden because the burden it imposes, though slight, outweighs its negligible benefits? Casey does not say, and this ambiguity would lead to confusion down the line. The third rule complicates the picture even more. Under that rule, unnecessary health regulations that have the purpose or effect of presenting a substantial obstacle to a woman seeking an abortion impose an undue burden on the right. This rule contains no fewer than three vague terms. It includes the two already discussed, undue burden and substantial obstacle, even though they are inconsistent, and it adds a third ambiguous term when it refers to unnecessary health regulations. The term necessary has a range of meanings from essential to merely useful. Casey did not explain the sense in which the term is used in this rule. In addition to these problems, one more applies to all three rules. They all call on courts to examine a law's effect on women, but a regulation may have a very different impact on different women for a variety of reasons, including their places of residence, financial resources, family situations, work and personal obligations, knowledge about fetal development and abortion, psychological and emotional disposition and condition, and the firmness of their desire to obtain abortions. In order to determine whether a regulation presents a substantial obstacle to women, a court needs to know which set of women it should have in mind and how many of the women in this set must find that an obstacle is substantial. Casey provided no clear answer to these questions. It said that a regulation is unconstitutional if it imposes a substantial obstacle in a large fraction of cases in which it is relevant. But there is obviously no clear line between a fraction that is large and one that is not, nor is it clear what the court meant by cases in which a regulation is relevant. These ambiguities have caused confusion and disagreement. The very difficulty of applying Casey's new rules surfaced in that very case. The controlling opinion found that Pennsylvania's 24-hour waiting period requirement and its informed consent provision did not impose undue burdens, but Justice Stevens applying the same test reached the opposite result. That did not bode well, and then-Chief Justice Rehnquist aptly observed that the undue burden standard presents nothing more workable than the trimester framework.
the ambiguity of the undue burden test also produced disagreement in later cases. In Whole Women's Health, the court adopted the cost-benefit interpretation of the test, stating that the rule announced in Casey requires that courts consider the burdens a law imposes on abortion access together with the benefits those laws confer. But five years later, a majority of the justices rejected that interpretation. Four justices reaffirmed whole woman's health's instruction to weigh a law's benefits against the burdens it imposes on abortion access. But the chief justice, who cast the deciding vote, argued that nothing about Casey suggested that a weighing of costs and benefits of an abortion regulation was a job of the courts. And the four justices in dissent rejected the plurality's interpretation of Casey. This court's experience applying Casey has confirmed Chief Justice Rehnquist's prescient diagnosis that the undue burden standard was not built to last. The experience of the courts of appeals provides further evidence that Casey's line between permissible and unconstitutional restrictions has proved to be impossible to draw with precision. Casey has generated a long list of circuit conflicts. Most recently, the courts of appeals have disagreed about whether the balancing test from whole woman's health correctly states the undue burden framework. They have disagreed on the legality of parental notification rules. They have disagreed about bans on certain dilation and evacuation procedures. They have disagreed about when an increase in the time needed to reach a clinic constitutes an undue burden. And they have disagreed on whether a state may regulate abortions performed because of the fetus's race, sex, or disability. The courts of appeals have experienced particular difficulty in applying the large fraction of relevant cases test. They have criticized the assignment while reaching unpredictable results, and they have candidly outlined Casey's many other problems. Casey's undue burden test has proved to be unworkable, plucked from nowhere, it seems calculated to perpetuate give-it-a-try litigation before judges assigned an unwieldy and inappropriate task. Continued adherence to that standard would undermine, not advance, the even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles. D. Effect on Other Areas of Law Roe and Casey have led to the distortion of many important but unrelated legal doctrines, and that effect provides further support for overruling those decisions. Members of this court have repeatedly lamented that no legal rule or doctrine is safe from ad hoc nullification by this court 
when an occasion for its application arises in a case involving state regulation of abortion. The court's abortion cases have diluted the strict standard for facial constitutional challenges. They have ignored the court's third-party standing doctrine. They have disregarded standard res judicata principles. They have flouted the ordinary rules on the severability of unconstitutional provisions, as well as the rule that statutes should be read where possible to avoid unconstitutionality, and they have distorted First Amendment doctrines. When vindicating a doctrinal innovation requires courts to engineer exceptions to long-standing background rules, the doctrine has failed to deliver the principled and intelligible development of the law that stare decisis purports to secure. E. Reliance Interests We last consider whether overruling Roe and Casey will append substantial reliance interests. Traditional reliance interests arise where advance planning of great precision is most obviously a necessity. In Casey, the controlling opinion conceded that those traditional reliance interests were not implicated because getting an abortion is generally unplanned activity, and reproductive planning could take virtually immediate account of any sudden restoration of state authority to ban abortions. For these reasons, we agree with the Casey plurality that conventional, concrete, reliance interests are not present here. Unable to find reliance in the conventional sense, the controlling opinion in Casey perceived a more intangible form of reliance. It wrote that people had organized intimate relationships and made choices that defined their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail and that the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives. But this court is ill-equipped to assess generalized assertions about the national psyche. Casey's notion of reliance thus finds little support in our cases, which instead emphasize very concrete reliance interests, like those that develop in cases involving property and contact, like those that develop in cases involving property and contract rights. When a concrete reliance interest is asserted, courts are equipped to evaluate the claim but assessing the novel and intangible form of reliance endorsed by the Casey plurality is another matter. That form of reliance depends on an empirical question that is hard for anyone, and in particular for a court, to assess, 
namely, the effect of the abortion right on society and, in particular, on the lives of women. The contending sides in this case make impassioned and conflicting arguments about the effects of the abortion right on the lives of women. The contending sides also make conflicting arguments about the status of the fetus. This court has neither the authority nor the expertise to adjudicate those disputes, and the Casey plurality's speculations and weighing of the relative importance of the fetus and mother represent a departure from the original constitutional proposition that courts do not substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies. Our decision returns the issue of abortion to those legislative bodies, and it allows women on both sides of the abortion issue to seek to affect the legislative process by influencing public opinion, lobbying legislators, voting, and running for office. Women are not without electoral or political power. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast ballots is consistently higher than the percentage of men who do so. In the last election in November 2020, women who make up around 51.5% of the population of Mississippi constituted 55.5% of the voters who cast ballots. Unable to show concrete reliance on Roe and Casey themselves, the Solicitor General suggests that overruling those decisions would threaten the court's precedence, holding that the Due Process Clause protects other rights. That is not correct for reasons we have already discussed, as even the Casey plurality recognized, abortion is a unique act because it terminates life or potential life. And to ensure that our decision is not misunderstood or mischaracterized, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Having shown that traditional stare decisis factors do not weigh in favor of retaining Roe or Casey, we must address one final argument that featured prominently in the Casey plurality opinion. The argument was cast in different terms, but stated simply, it was essentially as follows. The American people's belief in the rule of law would be shaken if they lost respect for this court as an institution that decides important cases based on principle, not social and political pressures. There is a special danger that the public will perceive a decision as having been made for unprincipled reasons when the court overrules a controversial watershed decision such as Roe. A decision overruling Roe would be perceived as having been made under fire and as a surrender to political pressure. 
and therefore the preservation of public approval of the court weighs heavily in favor of retaining Roe. This analysis starts out on the right foot, but ultimately veers off course. The Casey plurality was certainly right that it is important for the public to perceive that our decisions are based on principle and we should make every effort to achieve that objective by issuing opinions that carefully show how a proper understanding of the law leads to the results we reach. But we cannot exceed the scope of our authority under the Constitution, and we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. That is true both when we initially decide a constitutional issue and when we consider whether to overrule a prior decision. As Chief Justice Rehnquist explained, the judicial branch derives its legitimacy not from following public opinion, but from deciding by its best lights whether legislative enactments of the popular branches of government comport with the Constitution. The doctrine of stare decisis is an adjunct of this duty and should be no more subject to the vagaries of public opinion than is the basic judicial task. In suggesting otherwise, the Casey plurality went beyond this court's role in our constitutional system. The Casey plurality called the contending sides of a national controversy to end their national division and claimed the authority to impose a permanent settlement of the issue of a constitutional right simply by saying that the matter was closed. That unprecedented claim exceeded the power vested in us by the Constitution. As Alexander Hamilton famously put it, the Constitution gives the judiciary neither force nor will. Our sole authority is to exercise judgment, which is to say, the authority to judge what the law means and how it should apply to the case at hand. The court has no authority to decree that an erroneous precedent is permanently exempt from evaluation under traditional stare decisis principles. A precedent of this court is subject to the usual principles of stare decisis under which adherence to precedent is the norm but not an inexorable command. If the rule were otherwise, Erroneous decisions like Plessy and Lochner would still be the law. That is not how stare decisis operates. The Casey plurality also misjudged the practical limits of this court's influence. Roe certainly did not succeed in ending division on the issue of abortion. On the contrary, Roe inflamed a national issue that has remained bitterly divisive for the past half-century, and for the past 30 years, Casey has done the same. Neither decision has ended debate over the issue 
of a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. Indeed, in this case, 26 states expressly ask us to overrule Roe and Casey and to return the issue of abortion to the people and their elected representatives. This court's inability to end debate on the issue should not have been surprising. This court cannot bring about the permanent resolution of a rancorous national controversy simply by dictating a settlement and telling the people to move on. Whatever influence the court may have on public attitudes must stem from the strength of our opinions, not an attempt to exercise raw judicial power. We do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overruling Roe and Casey, and even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job, which is to interpret the law, apply long-standing principles of stare decisis, and decide this case accordingly. We therefore hold that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey must be overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. The dissent argues that we have abandoned stare decisis, but we have done no such thing. And it is the dissent's understanding of stare decisis that breaks with tradition. The dissent's foundational convention is that the court should never, or perhaps almost never, overrule an egregiously wrong constitutional precedent unless the court can point to major legal or factual changes undermining the decision's original basis. To support this contention, the dissent claims that Brown v. Board of Education and other landmark cases overruling prior precedents responded to changed law and to changed facts and attitudes that had taken hold throughout society. The unmistakable implication of this argument is that only the passage of time and new developments justified those decisions. Recognition that the cases they overruled were egregiously wrong on the day they were handed down was not enough. The court has never adopted this strange new version of stare decisis, and with good reason. Does the dissent really maintain that overruling Plessy was not justified until the country had experienced more than a half-century of state-sanctioned segregation and generations of black schoolchildren had suffered all its effects? Here is another example. On the dissent's view, it must have been wrong for West Virginia Board of Education v. Barnett to overrule Minersville School District v. Gobitis, a bare three years after it was handed down. In both such cases, children who were Jehovah's Witnesses 
refused on religious grounds to salute the flag or recite the Pledge of Allegiance. The Barnett Court did not claim that its re-examination of the issue was prompted by any intervening legal or factual developments. So if the court had followed the dissent's new version of stare decisis, it would have been compelled to adhere to Gobitis and countenance continued First Amendment violations for some unspecified period. Precedents should be respected, but sometimes the court errs and occasionally the court issues an important decision that is egregiously wrong. When that happens, when that happens, stare decisis is not a straitjacket. And indeed, the dissent eventually admits that a decision could be overruled just because it is terribly wrong, though the dissent does not explain when that would be so. Even if the dissent were correct in arguing that an egregiously wrong decision should almost never be overruled unless its mistake is later highlighted by major legal or factual changes, re-examination of Roe and Casey would be amply justified. We have already mentioned a number of post-Casey developments, but the most profound change may be the failure of the Casey plurality's call for the contending sides in the controversy about abortion to end their national division. That has not happened, and there is no reason to think that another decision sticking with Roe would achieve what Casey could not. The dissent, however, is undeterred. It contends that the very controversy surrounding Roe and Casey is an important starry diseases consideration that requires upholding those precedents. The dissent characterizes Casey as a precedent about precedent that is permanently shielded from further evaluation under traditional starry diseases principles. But as we have explained, Casey broke new ground when it treated the national controversy provoked by Roe as a ground for refusing to consider that decision, and no subsequent case has relied on that factor. Our decision today simply applies long-standing stare decisis factors instead of applying a version of the doctrine that seems to apply only in abortion cases. Finally, the dissent suggests that our decision calls into question Griswold, Eisenstadt, Lawrence, and Obergefell, but we have stated unequivocally that nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. We have also explained why that is so. Rights regarding contraception and same-sex relationships are inherently different from the right to abortion because the latter, as we have stressed, uniquely involves what Roe and Casey termed potential life. Therefore, 
a right to abortion cannot be justified by a purported analogy to the rights recognized in those other cases or by appeals to a broader right to autonomy. It is hard to see how we could be clearer. Moreover, even putting aside that these cases are distinguishable, there is a further point that the dissent ignores. Each precedent is subject to its own stare decisis analysis, and the factors that our doctrine instructs us to consider, like reliance and workability, are different for these cases than for our abortion jurisprudence. We now turn to the concurrence in the judgment, which reproves us for deciding whether Roe and Casey should be retained or overruled, that opinion, which for convenience we will call simply the concurrence, recommends a more measured course, which it defends based on what it claims is a straightforward, starry decisis analysis. The concurrence would leave for another day whether to reject any right to an abortion at all and would hold only that if the Constitution protects any such right, the right ends once women have had a reasonable opportunity to obtain an abortion. The concurrence does not specify what period of time is sufficient to provide such an opportunity, but it would hold that 15 weeks, the period allowed under Mississippi's law, is enough at least absent rare circumstances. There are serious problems with this approach, and it is revealing that nothing like it was recommended by either party. As we have recounted, both parties and the Solicitor General have urged us either to reaffirm or overrule Roe and Casey. And when the specific approach advanced by the concurrence was broached at oral argument, both respondents and the Solicitor General emphatically rejected it. Respondents' counsel termed it completely unworkable and less principled and less workable than viability. The Solicitor General argued that abandoning the viability line would leave courts and others with no continued guidance. What is more, the concurrence has not identified any of the more than 130 amicus briefs filed in this case that advocated its approach. The concurrence would do exactly what it criticizes Roe for doing, pulling out of thin air a test that no party or amicus asked the court to adopt. The concurrence's most fundamental defect is its failure to offer any principled basis for its approach. The concurrence would discard the rule from Roe and Casey that a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy extends up to the point that the fetus is regarded as viable outside the womb. But this rule was a critical component of the holdings in Roe and Casey, and stare decisis 
is a doctrine of preservation, not transformation. Therefore, a new rule that discards the viability rule cannot be defended on stare decisis grounds. The concurrence concedes that its approach would not be available if the rationale of Roe and Casey were inextricably entangled with and dependent upon the viability standard, but the concurrence asserts that the viability line is separable from the constitutional right they recognized and can therefore be discarded without disturbing any past precedent. That is simply incorrect. Roe's trimester rule was expressly tied to viability, and viability played a critical role in later abortion decisions. For example, in Planned Parenthood v. Danforth, the court reiterated Roe's rule that a state may regulate an abortion to protect the life of the fetus and even may proscribe abortion at the stage subsequent to viability. The court then rejected a challenge to Missouri's definition of viability, holding that the state's definition was consistent with Rose. If viability was not an essential part of the rule adopted in Roe, the court would have had no need to make that comparison, The holding in Colauti v. Franklin is even more instructive. In that case, the court noted that prior cases had stressed viability and reiterated that viability is the critical point under Roe. It then struck down Pennsylvania's definition of viability, and it is hard to see how the court could have done that if Roe's discussion of viability was not part of its holding. When the court reconsidered Roe in Casey, it left no doubt about the importance of the viability rule. It described the rule as Roe's central holding and repeatedly stated that the right it reaffirmed was the right of the woman to choose to have an abortion before viability. Our subsequent cases have continued to recognize the centrality of the viability rule. Not only is the new rule proposed by the concurrence inconsistent with Casey's unambiguous language, it is also contrary to the judgment in that case and later abortion cases. In Casey, the court held that Pennsylvania's spousal notification provision was facially unconstitutional, not just that it was unconstitutional as applied to abortions sought prior to the time when a woman has had a reasonable opportunity to choose. The same is true of Whole Women's Health, which held that certain rules that required physicians performing abortions to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital were facially unconstitutional because they placed a substantial obstacle in the path of women seeking a pre-viability abortion. For all these reasons, stare decisis cannot justify the new reasonable opportunity rule propounded by the concurrence.
If that rule is to become the law of the land, it must stand on its own. But the concurrence makes no attempt to show that this rule represents a correct interpretation of the Constitution. The concurrence does not claim that the right to a reasonable opportunity to obtain an abortion is deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Nor does it propound any other theory that could show that the Constitution supports its new rule, and if the Constitution protects a woman's right to obtain an abortion, the opinion does not explain why that right should end after the point at which all reasonable women will have decided whether to seek an abortion. While the concurrence is moved by a desire for judicial minimalism, we cannot embrace a narrow ground of decision simply because it is narrow. It must also be right. For the reasons that we have explained, the concurrence's approach is not. The concurrence would leave for another day whether to reject any right to an abortion at all, but another day would not be long in coming. Some states have set deadlines for obtaining an abortion that are shorter than Mississippi's. If we held only that Mississippi's 15-week rule is constitutional, we would soon be called upon to pass on the constitutionality of a panoply of laws with shorter deadlines or no deadline at all. The measured course, charted by the concurrence, would be fraught with turmoil until the court answered the question that the concurrence seeks to defer. Even if the court ultimately adopted the new rule suggested by the concurrence, we would be faced with the difficult problem of spelling out what it means. For example, if the period required to give women a reasonable opportunity to obtain an abortion were pegged, as the concurrence seems to suggest, at the point when a certain percentage of women make that choice, we would have to identify the relevant percentage. It would also be necessary to explain what the concurrence means when it refers to rare circumstances that might justify an exception. And if this new right aims to give women a reasonable opportunity to get an abortion, it would be necessary to decide whether factors other than promptness in deciding might have a bearing on whether such an opportunity was available. In sum, the concurrence's quest for a middle way would only put off the day when we would be forced to confront the question we now decide. The turmoil wrought by Roe and Casey would be prolonged. It is far better for this court and the country to face up to the real issue without further delay. We must now decide what standard will govern if state abortion regulations undergo constitutional challenge and whether the law before us satisfies the appropriate standard. Under our precedents, 
rational basis review is the appropriate standard for such challenges. As we have explained, procuring an abortion is not a fundamental constitutional right because such a right has no basis in the Constitution's text or in our nation's history. It follows that the states may regulate abortion for legitimate reasons And when such regulations are challenged under the Constitution, courts cannot substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies. That respect for a legislature's judgment applies even when the laws at issue concern matters of great social significance and moral substance. A law regulating abortion, like other health and welfare laws, is entitled to a strong presumption of validity. It must be sustained if there is a rational basis on which the legislature could have thought that it would serve legitimate state interests. These legitimate interests include respect for and preservation of prenatal life at all stages of development, the protection of maternal health and safety, the elimination of particularly gruesome or barbaric medical procedures, the preservation of the integrity of the medical profession, the mitigation of fetal pain, and the prevention of discrimination on the basis of race, sex, or disability. These legitimate interests justify Mississippi's Gestational Age Act except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality. The statute prohibits abortion if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. The Mississippi legislature's findings recount the stages of human prenatal development and assert the state's interest in protecting the life of the unborn. The legislature also found that abortions performed after 15 weeks typically use the dilation and evacuation procedure, and the legislature found the use of this procedure for non-therapeutic or elective reasons to be a barbaric practice dangerous for the maternal patient and demeaning to the medical profession. These legitimate interests provide a rational basis for the Gestational Age Act, and it follows that respondents' constitutional challenge must fail. We end this opinion where we began. Abortion presents a profound moral question— The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. The judgment of the Fifth Circuit is reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered.
You've come to the end of the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health. Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us, and be sure to join me next episode when I read New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin.